So the other day, Brian and I were recording a couple of segments for future episodes, and I really thoroughly outsmarted myself with the audio settings. It's it's not terrible, but it is rougher than I generally prefer. So as a result, I, I figured I would just release the whole the the whole longer uh, recording as a as a sort of a weekend bonus. If you find that you are interested in hearing two idiots talk about moral philosophy and New York real estate with a little sliver of succession in the middle, then you will likely enjoy what follows. If not, or if you are truly a hi-fi queen, then just skip this one and I will be back Wednesday with a, a more normal and uh, hopefully also higher quality episode for you then. Uh, in any case, Thank you, as always, for listening, and uh, here is my conversation with our good friend, Brian Platzer. Have you read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation? That's a crazy book that makes you believe that animals are just like humans. It's uh, it's hardcore. And if you believe it in the same way that like, if you believe in Christianity, you're sort of an asshole for not going around trying to get to turn everybody into Christians all the time. Animal Liberation by Peter Singer has a similar takeaway where it's like if you believe the premises of what he's saying which is i don't know what he's saying seems undoubtedly true to me like if you're not a vegetarian you are a terrible asshole um which is interesting because i don't believe in christianity so i don't care about making other people christians i do believe in the moral imperative not to eat animals but i continue to eat animals because of something i don't know deeply wrong or inhuman in me but it's a like airtight philosophical case about if you wouldn't torture like two-year-olds for your pleasure, like why would you torture animals for your pleasure? Like if the idea is to create less suffering in the world, and I think we all agree that that's one idea at least, like if you make that a premise, then there is no excuse for testing chemicals on animals or eating animals or doing pretty much anything other than treating them kindly as pets as, as you are. And I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea because like I so rarely read an article or an argument, in this case, it's a 300 page book that convinces me entirely. Um, but in this case, I'm intellectually convinced entirely that like the way we as a community, as a society treat animals is uh, unacceptable and it hasn't changed my uh, way of living at all. And I, I'm interested in in your thoughts on that. Like the easy way to say it is just like I'm a hypocrite across the board and just like I believe I should send my kids to public schools. I don't because it's easier for me because I can afford private schools and I teach at one to not experiment with my kids for the moral good. I just do what's selfish in the same case. Like I like the way a cheeseburger tastes. So no matter what you tell me about a cheeseburger and how bad it is for the animals now that's torture and really inhumane crime to, to eat it, I will continue eating it. The problem with that argument is it's not fully true because there are all sorts of things that I would maybe like to do that I don't do because they cause harm to others. I just don't go around being selfish and all the time, or maybe I do. And the reason I'm not selfish all the time is because it would have a deleterious effect on my life. And maybe the thing that like all the animal suffering in the world doesn't matter compared to one cheeseburger, which I don't know. Yeah. makes me a bad person or the same person as everybody else is in the world. So I know like there have been various smart people who've written about the problems with empathy lately. And like some of those arguments seem seem like just sort of like 
reflexive entries in our dumb culture war of the moment saying like you shouldn't feel empathy because that just makes you like people who are like you which is like there's truth to that but that's not a very good argument but i've heard a similar argument against empathy that's like you shouldn't pathetic because if you are you're going to be more prone towards evil because those same attitudes of empathy will then lead you to empathize with people who then can control you and make you do what you want for them which right. again isn't it particularly seems compelling a argument. Like argument that like oh no bad bad ideas will get out and they will like both like both d d dumb sides of our dumb culture war have the same dumb fear at the same time like dumb right-wing people are terrified that kids in school will hear critical race theory and then be brainwashed by it instantly and then obey it without without like really in, in a yes. way that like no child has ever heard a thing in school and then listened to it and made it you know like, right right but kids like, like you have to teach the kid what a preposition is like ten thousand times before the kid understands it right but if you and say once that, that, yeah either yeah, yeah like even when they do understand it then they just have contempt for it. no like but like what critical race theory is to dumb right-wingers um joe rogan is to dumb liberals Right, like, oh no, they'll hear the dumb things he says, and they'll be brainwashed, and they'll be forced to obey. So, I mean, I think like that that kind of argument about empathy, I find very boring and not valuable. But there is the like, you know, the the trolley problem. I know the trolley problem. The trolley everybody, problem. everybody, yeah. everybody. Uh, everybody. The, the thing about the trolley problem, I think, more than the trolley problem itself, the thing about the trolley problem is everyone knows about the trolley problem, which has become a sort of like. Uh, silly it's like the trolley problem has gone from like weird like not that convincing uh philosophy to just like this thing that everyone knows it's like the only philosophical problem that everybody has heard of so it, yeah. it's become sort of silly in and of itself but please trolley yeah. problem well no i mean and i think philosophically there's a very limited use one can get out of it uh, at least at this point but the 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 slight like psychological wrinkle in, that you, in the the version because there are two versions right there's the well there are a hundred versions but there's the version where like you can pull a lever and that will divert the tr trolley from the track where it's going to kill one person to a track where it will kill five people or from the track where it'll no kill you never pull the lever to make them kill more people that's not a problem <laughs> that be, that's actually we should design yeah. that trolley problem yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's even uh, dumber than the original trolley problem. Right, I want to come up with that version, but no. Yeah, so the idea is you kill fewer people, but you have to take action to do it. The 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 variation on that is that instead of pulling a lever that diverts the trolley, you're standing on a bridge and you push a giant fat man off of the bridge, and then he. <laughs> Why does the man have to be so fat? Because he has to be fat enough to stop the trolley. Like you push him, oh. he lands on the track and he stops the trolley before it hits the five people. No, that's ridiculous. There's no way even a man would stop the trolley. Or what if it you see, No, but there's something trolley. so absurd about that. Why you have to add that the man is giant and fat to have him stop the trolley. But like you don't because a fat man wouldn't stop a trolley any more than a regular man would. It, so that uh, it's, it's like a tiny it's, trolley. It's a small trolley and it's five toddlers on the track. So it would be the scale, adjust the scale accordingly. So, all right, but this is, we're adjusting the scale just so you can reconcile your decision to make the man a giant fat man right. whom you're pushing. Yeah. 
None of this actually has to do with the philosophy. You just want to be right in suggesting that the man I have to push is a giant fat man. Well, I'm, 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 I am right in the sense that that is the example that philosophers like to use as a variation. The, so there, there's what philosophers? Thing. You're telling me you're just like no, Brian. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say that I know what philosophers talk about when they talk about this other version of the trolley problem. Let me tell you that when I talk to philosophers, they say there are two versions of the trolley problem the one that everybody knows and the other second version there aren't three the second version that everyone doesn't know as well where you have to push a man and that has to be giant and fat yes though there's yeah. another variation yeah, that, like, that rings true yeah. right once you once like for the few people who've decided that they feel okay about pushing the fat man off the bridge to stop the trolley doesn't, why can't it just be a man <laughs> because he has to be big enough to stop the trolley but a fat man doesn't stop a trolley well so but then the other variation is well if a big fat man will stop the trolley stop it. we're calling him so fat <laughs> that's the isn't that the preferred term now Obese? I mean, Why can't it just be a, a, a person? Well, all right. Why does the corpulence of the person matter to this this uh, hypothetical? First of all, because that's the example that's given. That like I got when I was an undergrad. Yeah, you're that. using this passive voice given as though philosophers just always know that that you either pull the lever to have it go in one direction, or you push a man, and the man has to be a giant fat man. I'm not buying it. I. I didn't make that up. I that's the, that's the, I I got that example when I was an undergrad. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not some fat obsessive uh, that taught you as an undergrad who's defined this other version of your whole life. I'm just saying you're going out to the Slee Ricketts universe saying everyone knows there are two versions of this problem. One where you're for, the other where you push a person and that person has to be a giant fat person because giant fat people, we all know, stop trolleys okay. can't be right. But so the point though, the point of this variation is that you know, if people who have a calculation that says like, oh, well, you know, less death is better, so I'm going to pull the lever, those same people balk at the prospect of pushing somebody off a bridge, even though yeah, it's, that the makes same, sense. it's the same number of deaths, right? Yeah. And, that, and the suggestion there is that it's not so much about what we're doing that's good in a cosmic sense, it's more about how we feel about what we're doing. And so while you you really do take into account kind of like moral implications when you're dealing with either when you're dealing with something that's sort of totally removed from your immediate experience or when you're dealing with something that where like your sense of what's right coincides with like the way you feel about how you're treating somebody in your immediate presence but when the difference is between some abstract cow on a farm a thousand miles away and like the immediate physical sensation of eating a cheeseburger then you're still mostly governed by how you feel rather than some abstract assessment. I mean, this is the same problem with like the, the um, you know, the repugnant conclusion about like, like some philosophers, and this feels like a really dumb field of philosophy to me, honestly, there, there's a, there's a field that As is opposed to the, the fields of philosophy that rely on. Right. So there's a, like, there are some philosophers that, who spend a lot of time thinking about not even about like likely future humans, but about like hypothetical non-existent humans. Like they're like they're concerned with like, well, what if you eliminate suffering by like like what if abortion is not just a tool for like making the life of the mother and maybe her family better for them, but also like in an antinatalist way preventing suffering in the life of the person who never was born 
Um, and like that, that way of thinking just feels like a bonkers rabbit hole. But there's a famous conclusion, what's called the repugnant conclusion, which is that, well, most of us would rather be alive than dead. So what if we, you could imagine an earth in the future that had like 10, mil, 10 billion people on it, 20 you know, billion people on it. And that would be, that could get crowded, but like things would be okay, I guess, depending on climate and whatever. But then maybe there's also a version of the earth that technically could support like a hundred billion people. And that would be, the quality of life would be way, way, way lower, but they'd all still be alive. And so the repugnant conclusion is like, I guess we should just have more people who increasingly live like termites in a, you know, in a cramped hive. Like, I feel like a lot of the books I read and a lot of like the sort of the intellectually ambitious podcasts or movies or TV shows I encounter talk about how everybody thinks they're a good person and we you know everyone really thinks he's the good guy and i i i can't remember the last time i thought i was a good person like i just like right. i feel like right. i really gave up on thinking i was a good person quite a while ago and i just try to keep sort of like i mean it's a little bit the way i think about like my physical condition like i don't want to be totally out of shape and not able to do anything but i i'm not it's not going to be great it's like going to be fine it's going to be good enough. The, 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 the follow-up question I think is important to ask when somebody says something along the lines of what you just said, which I find myself saying not infrequently, yeah. is are there good people out there? Are you, are you, is it not just yourself who you don't think of as good people, but do you, is that a category that doesn't interest you? Or do you think there are good people and you are not one of them? Because I am definitely in the former camp. I think that there yeah. are really not good people and therefore i don't aspire to be a good person i think that there are people who treat those people around them better and, and bring more joy into their own life and the lives of those people they love and yeah. people who do less of that and i'd like to be in the former camp but i, I th this good versus bad thing i a lot of the the philosophy it's funny I, i've heard also a few podcasts and and read a couple articles about what you're talking about earlier the sense of uh, empathy being dangerous. Um, and a lot of those articles end with the conclusion that like the categories of good and bad um, are artificial and therefore we shouldn't necessarily prize empathy anyway. My attitude is sort of starting from the categories of good and bad are like obviously are artificial. So having this conversation about empathy becomes a waste of time. I, I think it's the same general um conversation but one starts with the conclusion of the other yeah i don't know if i agree with either end of that argument like i, I tend to think that there is such a thing as good and bad not necessarily cosmically but i think like in in sort of meaningful practical sense there there is like in the same sense in which you can say that there are things like the interests or incentives of groups of people like there there are good there is like goodness for more people, goodness for other people, conscientiousness. I mean, I think like, I don't think it's a clean, absolute philosophical category, but I don't think it's like, that's nothing, you know? I have like a special personal uh, uh, luxury artistic self-loathing, right? Which is like special to me. But then beyond that, yeah, I think most people who live in the general world that I know about and live in are not especially good people, are 
you know, maybe you're not like malevolent and maybe in many cases are well-intentioned, but are not doing like the good things that we could all do. I do think that there are people, I mean, I was sort of being tongue in cheek the other day in that interview, but I kind of meant what I said, which is like, I think Kathleen Jones might be the one good person I know. Like, right. I, I think that there are certainly um, people. And I think like there's a version of my life where like I could be a much better person than I am. That's And that wouldn't be, it wouldn't be really? like. Because it's interesting because because I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that because I, I do think that there are people who I would put in the category of psychologically damaged, but we can discuss whether that is real yeah. or not, who, who cause um, a lot of suffering around them intentionally. And that seems like an easy group to say, like, right. whether yeah, it's their yeah. fault that they do so or not, like, who's to say, but those are somehow worse lives that those people are leading or worse people, if you want to say that the life you lead defines the, what type of person you are. Um, but what you just said is interesting, that you think that there is a way that you would live your life that would make you a better person. And I don't feel that way about my life, and nor do I feel that way about your life. Like, if I were to go adopt three teenagers right now who otherwise were living in, you know, difficult circumstances, I don't think that would make me a better person. I think that that would be indicative of my filling some hole in my own life that there would be a performative element to it there would be a desire to have people who love me whom i can acquire in that way not that that act isn't noble in some ways it's a better act than like eating a donut but i i don't know whether that would make my life a better life or me a better person yeah you, i feel like you changed terms on me slightly or maybe i presented my terms in a, in a vague way but I think what I said was, I think I could be a better person. And maybe what I should have said is, I think I could do better things on a regular basis than I do. Whereas what you said was like, there is not a way I could live that would make me be a better person. And like, I, I guess I'm less interested in like what category I fall into than I am in like how I assess my actions. Yeah, I think if I were to go adopt a bunch of kids who had a bad life and I was able to give them a better life as a result of that, I don't know what that would do to my the condition of my soul, which I also think like I just think like we have a, this we have this like weird dumb interest in. There's like people have talked a lot about like the religious qualities of some of our current social movements. The religious quality that I, I'm most bored by is the interrogation of the soul. Like, what is my? Yeah, I agree like, with that. Do I deep? Am I secretly inside a racist? Am I secret? It's like no, and secretly inside, in your heart of hearts, you're a shit. You're a piece of shit, like everybody is. Not like, but who cares? Right. That's very boring. But like, right. no, I think I think there are ways I could live that would involve not just like individual acts of virtue, but like genuine, ge you know, generally, habitually, regularly better actions and ways of living. I think like that's you know, I could consume less i could take i could do more actively to improve the you know the immediate conditions of people around me i could spend less time indulging my you know dumb uh interests and urges that don't help anybody else i mean i think like yeah there, there's, a, there's a line in uh young jean lee's weird brilliant and then also failed play church where like there's a preacher who comes out on stage and one of the first things he says is uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You you already know what you're supposed to do. You just don't want to do it. And I think, I like, think that, that tends to be pretty true for most of us. I agree, except the people I know, perhaps the guest you interviewed um, is an exception to this because she seemed 
wonderful in, in every way. But the people I know who dedicate themselves most to charity and who give more of their time in these sort of noble ways that you're talking about and give money and they don't bring happiness to those around them at any larger level. They, I, I, they, they seem to be um, sort of cloying and annoying in other ways. Like I, 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 I don't know whether if exactly. if I were to spend, I'm, but but I'm, but, but what I mean isn't though that everybody is equally good or bad. What I'm saying is that if I were to go and donate a lot of my money and spend a lot of my time doing things that were good things to do. Yeah. I don't know if I would be the same father or teacher to my students or husband to my wife or like, I don't, I don't know no. whether these yeah. individual, I, I think it might detract from what makes me, me in, in these other ways. I, I don't know it whether would. you can. I think it definitely would. Like I, I will say, and I'll speak in vague terms here, but like there is somebody in my life who has devoted a really disproportionate amount of his resources and time and in every dimension to improving objectively improving the lives of other people who are far away from him in most respects and not only has this made him less pleasant for those who spend a lot of time with him to be like less pleasant to be around but also he has made him in many ways miserable but right. I and I, I, I don't. So I think like you would be more annoying, probably you would be less pleasant to be around. But I also think that doesn't mean you wouldn't be on balance improving life for more people. Right. And that's a math problem that I'm not good enough at math to to solve, like whether the intense relationships I have with my kids and close friends and wife and students whom I teach on a regular basis, et cetera the hours and hours and hours I spend with all these people, whether the version of me would be different or um, ineffective in some way if I dedicated a lot of my time and, and, and moral focus on strangers, I don't know. Obviously, it makes me more comfortable not doing all these acts of benevolence, thinking that there is some downside to my doing them. Like it it allows me to decide not to give 40% of my earnings and 20% right. of my time to strangers because I've concluded that doing so would somehow detract from the more intense, closer relationships I have when there's no way for me to know one way or the other. But I do just anecdotally seem to see that those people who dedicate the most of their time and energy to strangers, as you just said of your friend, are... Um, sort of crappy to be around. And I, yeah. I don't know what the um, larger implication of that is and w whether that's, again, because I am sort of jealous of their behavior in some way and I think less of myself when I'm around them, but that doesn't seem to be the case. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I think there's a, there's a, an insincerity or, or something of, to, to, to that mode of existence that, that, that really I, I find off-putting, which might be the answer to this animal thing, which is like, I just don't care very much about animals. So I eat them, even though I know it's wrong. And if all of a sudden I was trying to not eat animals because I knew it's wrong, even though I didn't care about animals, I would be a less pleasant person to spend time with for those people who enjoy spending time with me. 
Oh, right. I mean, I, I, I guess I just see it feels very straightforward. Like, I think, I think there's a version of a more virtuous life that would actually be all around better. And this is partly why I, I do hold Kathleen in, in a certain esteem. Like, the Aristotelian vision of a good life is that the good man is the man who doesn't just do good things or do them habitually, but who actually is like he wants to, you know, his his instinct, his trained instinct is to feel pleasure at doing good things like good things are the urge that he follows. Right, which isn't so different from the uh, paradox of Protestantism, right? It's it's the, the, the good deeds you don't do because you know they're good and they'll get you into heaven. It's the inherent God within you that creates the good deeds that you really don't have active control over. Yeah, I mean, I have you. You're more generous to Protestantism than I am as a rule. <laughs> my my inclination is to say like, good deeds. What are we Catholics? Fuck that. Like, like right? No, I like, totally. Yeah, I, like, but, yeah. Uh, they the yeah they would they're just interested in whether you're saved or not. Like a light switch has been turned on, uh, which is not really fair to. And I'm married to a woman who's raised Protestant. That's you know, I have I, I have hostility toward yeah. My, that's my my um, my uh, implicit bias is, is against against Protestants, especially Baptists. But it's not fair. But no, I mean, I like for I, I, a dumb but but maybe pertinent example since you're talking about animals is spaying and neutering. And yeah, I'm fascinated by that. Right. Absolutely, and there, there is the like philosophical argument about like, oh well, if there are fewer dogs born to like lives of being strays and living in the woods or being hit by cars or having bad, you know, like it's better to have fewer of them and that's less suffering for, for all lives involved. But also the, like one of the reasons that we got a female dog and we like opted to get a female dog, uh, is that they're supposed to be mellower and kind of nicer mostly, but also like, I was glad I didn't have to lobby to get a female dog. I would have lobbied to get a female dog because given that we will almost certainly have our dog spayed slash neutered, in this case spayed, it's more horrifying. Is, is, that, a, is that a hysteremy spaying? Yeah. Um, basically, yeah. I'm not sure what the particulars of it are, but yeah, it's a permanent removal of sex organs that prevents the dog from reproducing. I don't know. I don't know right. exactly how it lines up with like a, a human, you know, right or whatever. But it's more horrifying to me to cut the balls off of a dog. Like it feels more. Part of, I mean, mostly because. Oh, to, to me, that seems far less horrifying. That's like I don't know. The dog has balls, and like you put a super tight rubber band around it, and you cut them off. The ball. The dog doesn't have balls anymore, and like it's the same dog. Invasive procedures, cutting organs out of female dogs. That freaks me out. Oh, it's more, it's almost certainly objectively a bigger, like, physical trauma, setting aside whatever else. I still find it more hard. Like, I still find the castration more horrifying just because I'm... But what's the theory about... No, I, I get that. You, you think of your own testicles when you yeah. hear about dogs' testicles being removed. Right. But what's the, what's the theory behind spaying and neutering? I, I know that if you own a dog, dogs are, like, super hard to own if they're always looking to have sex with everybody like they're yeah they, they're like they, louder they and bigger and especially, especially are do get more aggressive and they do yeah and, well, and what's the what's the philosophical like why did bob barker end all the episodes of the the price is right saying have your dogs spayed or neutered like what is the i think the the idea what, what's is the moral 
there was a problem and i think it's 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 um diminished some though i think it's still it's not it's still a problem in some places more than others of just having a lot of people's people would not get their dogs spayed or neutered and then they would have puppies and then they would just let them go and so you just have lots of strays uh, but what was the problem with that? Was the problem that it just sucks to live around all these straight animals? Or well, dogs aren't wild animals; they're domestic. So, they're like they, when they're not actually living in somebody's house, they don't—they're not really meant to totally be wild. Like they don't live well. Like they—they they so they starve to death. That's the—they starve to death, or they live, or they keep straggling on in very poor condition, or they. Uh, or they end up causing damage or hurting other people or, you know, like they're, they're supposed to be domesticated. And so if they're not, then it's a, then like, it's a problem. Again, it's not a, a problem I've followed closely, but I understand the basic, it's basically, it's a population control thing. And it's always interesting. Uh, I mean, the, the idea of what like act of goodness one takes on is interesting in some ways. But that that stays with I think a lot of children of my generation. Where when you stayed home sick, you watched The Price Is Right, and this like kindly old man would <laughs> tell the blondes to like show off the speedboat or something. And at the end, he'd be like, "And don't cut your dog's balls off." And wait, like wait, I wait, like, don't don't get them spayed or neutered. No, no, sorry, 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 sorry. He would. I guess that sounds more attuned with the cheeriness of his voice in my mind. But he at the end, it would be, he'd be all, like also be a more strange agenda right that's true <laughs> that's sort of making me like him more he's like everybody don't cut your dog's balls off he's like really into the dog party you know um but no he's like and by the way cut your dog's balls off you're like and i that that was a very odd um sort of exclamation point to all of the episodes of the shows where you tried to guess how much the the brillo pads would cost uh they're just thinking about like he could have said anything right like he he could have said like make sure to wear sunscreen or give money to the needy or let's eradicate malaria. But instead he's like, cut your dog's balls off. And that has stayed with me in sort of how arbitrary all of so many people's aim towards b benevolent action can be. Right. Well, and I think it's, I think it's tied to your sense of comfort. I mean, it's why like, you know, whatever my abstract thinking about this, question this relatively obscure question would be like what's going to govern what i do is a combination of what's like convenient what joanna feels strong social pressure to do what i feel strong pressure to do like what seems to make my life less unpleasant and like i don't want to take a stand that's gonna you know so yeah it's if i get if we get the dog spayed which we probably will it won't be really in order to serve any greater good. I mean, I think it's the same story of like the Susan, Susan G. Komen breast cancer thing, like, because breast cancer right. is a, is like a, is a cause that it made a lot of sense to a lot of people emotionally to attach themselves to. It got way more resources than it needed. And, and a lot of others got a lot less. So, I, I mean, I think that's my feeling about like, yeah, ideally you would be somebody who genuinely wants to do the better thing and always does it and is still happy and pleasant and funny and at ease to be around for most of us the the real option is between doing the better thing and being and becoming kind of insufferable or being nice and fun to be around and uh and, and living a kind of a mostly self-serving life or like me living a self-serving life and still being unpleasant to be around but but i, I think like it, it's I don't, I mean, like, I enjoy having a nice, really, like, easygoing relationship with 
my siblings or children or whatever, but I also don't think that that's, I don't think it even comes close to comparing to the good that I could do if I like devoted my life to doing good. I just don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fair. I, I, something I've been thinking a little bit about, but haven't spent enough time to that I trust my own opinions is that there are three very prominent women who have money because of their former husband's immense wealth. So um, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Jeff Bezos um, all have former spouses who are sitting on billion, billions of dollars. And the way that they are managing that responsibility um, is fascinating to me. Uh, and, and again, I, I haven't thought through all the implications of this, so I'm not sure where I'm going with it now. But like, Melinda Gates is separating herself from Bill now publicly in a way that she's decided she's not going to give all of her money to the Gates Foundation. She is going to sign pledges that Bill didn't want to earlier. Um, that in the face of uh, Steve Jobs's ex, who is doing something that nobody's ever done in the history of philanthropy, as far as I understand, which is just going around giving huge sums of money to all sorts of uh, charities out there, just like meeting with people and giving them millions or hundreds of millions of dollars and fundamentally changing the face of giving in America. And then you have uh, you have Steve Jobs's widow who has started this Emerson Collective, which is a mishmash of things for the public good. They also bought that pop-up magazine thing, which is folded because it didn't really do a good enough job presenting magazine pieces. They also bought the Atlantic. Um, they own um, uh, a, a piece of, uh, I, I think the majority, if not all of um, one of the anonymous film studios, which is a, a major production company, as well as charities. And she's like trying to put it all together to figure out how this is better for the world. But these are all exercises in like people's personalities manifesting themselves with billions of dollars behind them. And I, I am uh, just fascinated in following what's, what's going to have happened 10 or 15 or 30 years from now with these various people who are given billions of dollars to do what they will with. And there's no obvious answer that there are a, a bunch of groups now trying to figure out, you know, sort of clearing houses for money givers to try to figure out what the best use of this money is. And, and that's a, an industry that interests me as well, because it's people who try to make their lives, making sure that money that goes to charity is best spent. But I happen to meet one of the people who is spending his life doing this. And he is as unbearable as you would imagine talking about is how much most charities are garbage. You know, he's going to think of the best charity and why won't more people listen to him when it comes to charities. And it's the, that, that disconnect in devoting one's life for good and being sort of obnoxious a bit. Whereas you said, it seems clear that the devotion of one's life is the better, more important focal point for us to judge people insofar as we want to judge people. But actually when I'm spending time with them, the way I'm judging them is like, oh, this guy's annoying with all the money he's talking about giving away to charity and how the best way to do it isn't what other people are doing. That that um, that distinction, that tension is one that interests me now and I think will only interest me more as we see all of this play out. Yeah. So like the Greta Thunberg problem. Where she's constantly yelling at people. 
Oh, well, like, I think based, I mean, I haven't followed her closely. Like, my, my general impression of her is that she's 100% right and would just be, like, horrible to hang out with. Would be, like, the worst. You'd just never want to be around her. But probably, like, I think she's almost certainly completely right about everything she says. Except the one thing that makes me giggle about Greta Thunberg is how she continues to talk generationally, where she's like, you old people, you're the one who's ruining the world oh, for geez. us children. But like now that she's a teenager and like like everybody her age is similarly ruining the world, she's still yelling at the old people. They're like, I have this vision of her and like as a 70-year-old, like going to nursing homes and finding the hundred-year-olds and saying, like, you you hundred-year-olds, like you're the ones who have ruined this world and given my generation like nothing to deal with. Like I, there, there is something that, again, she's totally right. People older than her have ruined the world, but people her age have ruined the world and people younger than her and her going on a boat, yelling at people all over the world is like so unappealing. And yet, as you say, like morally, obviously valid. The, the, the where it gets most difficult for me is in talking to my children. One, one of whom feels like she, I both like have less concern for her, like her in her career and her self, her ability to, you know, live and self-direct and whatever. The other one of whom is, is like extremely sensitive and thoughtful and like morally contemplative. And I, and I, I'm, I still talk to her as if I am somebody who has like a reasonable, serious chance of raising a child with like a moral compass and like i still i just treat my conversations with her as if i'm trying to impart moral values to her although part of me knows like oh well but we're also basically all frauds <laughs> basically this is right all. but but i think that there's there's the fraudulence of parenthood that is important like the i assume my kids will smoke pot and i don't care if they smoke pot as long as it doesn't become a distraction from whatever it is they would want to be otherwise doing. Yeah. That being said, if I told Owen, who's eight right now, that I really have no problem with you smoking pot, you should do it and you should do it at whatever age you want. Um, I don't want it to become a distraction, but go for it. It's like pretty fun to do. I think if I told that to him as an eight-year-old, the, the consequence would be sort of out, outsized potentially. So, like similarly, yeah, yeah, if yeah. you told if you told your seven-year-old, nine-year-old, eight-year-old that like really to be a good person isn't what is prioritizing in my life. It's what your teachers tell you, and it's what your friends' parents will say. But know that being good isn't important to me. There will be consequences to that beyond just your honesty. It, it, yeah. it, it'll sort of open doors that that I think are dangerous isn't the word, but not useful perhaps. Like I, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. living in a world where we are prioritizing kindness now, like let her realize in 10 years that it's more complicated than that, rather than plant those seeds now. Were, was I in a class with I, we, you and I? Know, were never in a class together, but was it one of those Correct. weird? Was it one of those weird, uh, like cross genre seminar things where we read that essay called "The Cyclops Child"? No, never heard of it. I, I'm pretty sure I, I read that in grad school. I can't remember for whom or why, but it was this this essay written by 
a doctor who was practicing uh he was an ob guy in like the 50s or so and he the story was of this child this baby that he delivered that had just a nightmarish birth defect where basically like it's the upper part of its face was a big weird bundle of like optic nerves and it sounds it sounds awful yeah and it had like limited development and some of its basic systems but like but the the reality was like there would be there was a version of medicine at the time that would have allowed him to what we almost certainly what we would do now is sort of put it on a kind of a life support and it would be living and you know its brain would be alive and it would be screaming and going on but it would be just sort of like a life of pure misery and so he told the mother that it had died and then let it starve to death and and the conclusion of the essay which which you know uh horrified everybody in the classroom as i recall myself included but his conclusion was it's important that we have we have strong moral rules and laws against doing this kind of thing and it's also important that there be some people who have who make a judgment call and break them and I think there are like obviously enormous and incredibly dangerous possibilities that can be derived from that kind of argument, like say uh, eugenics and so forth. You know, like they're terrible of course, things. Of course. Right? I, I also think there's a kernel of truth to it, and like part of the kernel of truth is is not as much about an elite group of people who get to choose whether to obey the law or not, but about the importance of maybe. Acting carve outs for humanity, like, it, like carve outs for. Right. Like, we don't, we both are, it's not that we are blithely immoral people. It's that we are, we are enthusiastically hypocritical immoral people who, who like are restrained by shame and fear from doing the worst things we could do, but also aren't really genuinely committed to doing the best things we could do. And maybe that balance is sort of important. I think you've convinced me. I, I think that what I need to think more about is why I so distrust others who do what I don't do and what you just referred to as sort of the more moral action. I, I think that I'm not as satisfied with my own understanding of why I have that knee-jerk reaction saying that I am a hypocrite because I know the right thing to do and I don't do it, but the people who know the right thing to do and do it are even worse hypocrites somehow because at their heart, they do it for the wrong reasons or they're worse than I am for other ways. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to have the conversation about whether anything is actually selfless. Cause like, we'll all go down that rabbit hole and our kids will when they're freshmen in college as, as well. But like, I, I, I am interested in why I am so quick to judge the benevolent in that way. Good. Shall I, we talk about the couple things we planned on talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to um, do you want to cruelly attack my terminally ill foster mother Christian friend who has the wrong opinion about uh, succession first, or do you want to? I no, think, I actually. I for months you you said please let me know if you want to talk about succession because I'd love to talk about it. And then I and then I I, I had a conversation with Kathleen and posted a thing or had Joanna post a thing about it. 
and just never told you until you yeah. slightly later and said, Hey, yes. how I would like to do that. Yeah. So I, I don't, I, I don't want to be like a dancing monkey succession style for you right now. I agree with, <laughs> with almost all of what you and Kathleen said. I only want to add the fact that I think the, 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 the flaw in the show is one of plotting as opposed to anything else that you discussed. I, I think that the dialogue is whip smart, brilliant, laugh out loud, funny. I think the characters are not only charismatic, but um, sort of perfectly cast in their way. I also am a Kieran Culkin junkie, but Sarah Snook and Jeremy Strong and Brian Cox are all so spectacular. Even Matthew McFadden, who, who plays um, Tom, like his nose is so dopey. It's just like a perfect face for that role. And Alan Ruck has been born to, to, to come back, um, you know, after Ferris Bueller and be a, uh, a guy for whom life has totally worked out, but not at all worked out. Like I, I think that it is brilliantly cast, brilliantly acted, brilliantly written. The problem in my mind to the show, and the reason why I feel the middle of definitely the second and third season, and perhaps the first one as well, flags, is because the plot doesn't make much sense, where we as viewers don't actually care who's in charge of Royco, that or it's you know, uh, Roman for 20 minutes and then Shiv takes over and Logan takes it back. Like it, it feels like musical chairs is in the right. Somebody loses in musical chairs. It feels like some never end over. There's always the same number of chairs and the music just keeps on playing and people sit down and stand up forever. So what the show does to try to, um, land or stick these seasons is it's going in one direction and the music's playing and like, I don't know, someone will end up in the lead seat, but it doesn't really matter who it is. And then a crazy coincidence happens. And that coincidence isn't caused by anything that happens previously. Because like in season one, for example, you have um, Jeremy Strong's character, Kendall Roy, accidentally murder somebody. And that accidentally murder is sort of linguistically off because you can't accidentally murder, but like is, is responsible for the death of another character. And you could say it was building up to that point and it was inevitable because he was a drug addict and he mistreated people. But anybody in the show could have as easily murdered somebody like he did it through drugs, but someone else could have done it through cruelty or Roman could have done it through lack of attention or a sexual, you know, a deviance or something, you know, and then they would have been the one to murder somebody. But it just happened to be at the end of the season one that, um, Jeremy Strong's character, Kendall, murders somebody. So like the whole season's reversed. Or if you look at the, the most recent season, you know, they're all getting ready and it looks as though Kieran Culkin's character, Roman, is going to take over because uh, Brian Cox's character, Logan, can trust him. But then he's been sending people the sexual uh, advances throughout this entire show. And like he accidentally sends a dick pic to his father and his father now thinks less of him. And that changes the course of, of action. And like the end of season two, um, similarly, you have Jeremy Strong, Kendall Roy put his foot in the, the ground. If that's where one puts a foot or puts a, a his hand on the table and, and says like, I'm going to, what's the expression? You put your, you put your stake in the ground. You put your stake in the ground. Isn't that an plant expression? Flag, or you, you plant a flag. He puts his foot down and he plants a flag and he puts a stake in the ground. <laughs> if it's not an expression, it should be. And either type of stake, either like a long pole stake or like he buries a piece of cattle and he, he puts that stake in the ground and he 
reverses uh, one's expectations and he turns on his dad. But there's nothing about his character that is necessarily going to do that. You could see as easily uh, Shiv do that or Roman or Greg or Tom or Connor. You know, uh, Tom does it last season. So it's you know, there's no real like inevitable this leads to this, this leads to this, which leads to this grand reveal that makes sense in retrospect in the way that like plotting needs to have to be satisfying. Instead, you have a bunch of witty dialogue and compelling emotional shifts and then a big coincidence. And that's what the end of the season, uh, you know, so like I, I think it's a fantastic show. I think that the problem with it and perhaps the problem with a continuing season after season is that once you know that nothing is building inevitably to a conclusion that you have to focus on and you don't give a shit who's in charge of this terrible company at the end it means that really you are watching for you know superficial reasons like how great the soundtrack is you know that that repeating oh, yeah. score like a thrill yeah. you know and like like you're you're watching it for the thrill of that a soundtrack coming back in the same way that you're watching it for the witty dialogue in the same way that you're watching it to see what Kieran Culkin's, you know, comeback is going to be. And those are all pleasures, but I, I don't think in the same way as I know we can't compare everything to the wire that's good in the same way that we can't compare everything to the Holocaust that's bad. But like, whereas you watch the wire, you know that it's building up to something and it will reward your attention to detail and your investment in the characters. You watch um, Succession and at this point, I think you know it will not reward that. And it is exciting to see Tom turn on Shiv because Shiv had been mean to Tom, but it would be equally exciting to see anybody turn on anybody else. And I think that the show doesn't reach its full potential because of those problems with plot. So that had problem that had not occurred to me at all until you texted a thing about it the other day. And it you basically have, have fully convinced me. I also realized, I think, or at least I will I will justify my own uh, lack of perceptiveness by saying that I think the reason it didn't at all occur to me is the same reason that Pepsi always wins the the taste test challenge with Coke. Do you know this? Pepsi I mean, just tastes better. Don't drink carbonated sugar water. It, all of this seems like nonsense. But I grew up in Atlanta, which is like which is the town. Coke town. Yeah. Yeah. So Pepsi had this whole ad campaign based on these taste tests they would do where they would give a little Dixie cup of Pepsi and a Dixie cup of Coke. And they'd have they would like go to the mall or a street corner or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Little, then, little right. blind taste tests, you know, out in public. And Pepsi, you know, statistically did much better than Coke. And what it, apparently it turns out as a, as a, as a Coke chauvinist, I, you know, I, I should say, uh, but I mean, of course, all of it's again, like with any perspective, if you've gone any length of time without drinking that every day, then it seems ridiculous to drink it at all. You but, keep on delaying. You keep on delaying. Yeah, Tell me why. I don't know the answer why. Pepsi is slightly sweeter. Um, <laughs> and well, no. So, but so if you have them to get, right. If you, do, if you do not that anybody wants to drink two cans of cola in a row, but if you were to do a taste test where you drank a whole can of cola in a row, uh, Coke does better. Because a little quick sip of it, people prefer Pepsi. But I think what I realized is that part of the reason that I didn't really have any meaningful perception of the plot overall, apart from the fact that people like did big, mean, dramatic things to each other every once in a while, is that uh, I'm totally going to sell out Joanna. But because of her very, very healthy relationship with sleep, we watched the entire show, like all three seasons we watched like 11 minutes at a time any episode <laughs> i had like i saw in, in like 
it, it, the fewest would be like three installments. So basically like all I ever got were like, basically my experience of the show was like watching clips on YouTube of it effectively. So I have no sense of what the plot of any season is. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's so stylish and so fun. And also it reminds me of the one thing that you and I discussed Game of Thrones not too long ago. And what I forgot to say about Game of Thrones, which was the real brilliant Game of Thrones, is that the whole show was just little snippets, but the last little snippet would be an amazing dragon lady doing amazing dragon things. So it could get away with like, internal politics and like wait where in westeros is that and like they're crossing a bridge and oh look a torture scene because they would all be lined up and at the end the dragon lady would fly her dragons and everybody would be amazed and you would see the shooting of the sparks or she wouldn't catch on fire or she would just do something extraordinary and it's that same thing where if you watch these shows in small snippets you get the small snippet eventually you get that like that that juice that joy that extra sweetness and um that carries so much of it for you that I completely understand why that becomes appealing. Just knowing that whenever you want, you can get that sugar in your 11 minute doses. We probably don't even have time to talk about all the things we were going to talk about, but my brain can do the New York city thing now, if you want to, but I'm, I'm fine just to like start a new episode as though we haven't just been talking. That's the, that, I'll tell you what, that's the crazy thing about Bob Barker saying, get your uh, dog spade is that they shoot those like five in a row. So he said right. that like five times in front of the same audience. <laughs> like, so it really must have landed with him. <laughs> you know? By the, the fourth of five times, you really, you really, really are going to cut your dog's balls <laughs> off. Although what would be great is if like one of those five times he said the opposite and then just didn't acknowledge <laughs> By the end, they're bringing in dogs to see if it works. <laughs> like, do it now, now. Who have I convinced? It's like like training uh train like SS officers by having them murder small exactly. animals. Yeah. Do you want to give an overview of the I mean to my mind the funniest zoning controversy of recent memory? I do want to give a, an overview yeah. of the funniest zoning controversy in recent memory. So there are a few places to start. I think the the place that I'd like to start is just personal. Then I'll bring it out to sort of the intellectual logic behind of it and then behind it. And then we can talk about the implications. So I grew up um, on Broadway and 4th Street in Manhattan to a middlingly successful lawyer and um, a woman who ended up helping run the James Beard Foundation, a, a food thing. And neither of them are artists. And we always sort of knew that our neighborhood was vaguely artistic. It was near Greenwich Village, you know, where we knew Bob Dylan used to sing songs. And it was near Soho, where when I grew up, there were still a lot of art galleries. I've since learned that this was a coincidence of urban planning that it used to be in lower Manhattan. There were these big buildings that were factories for the most part. There were paper mills and there were um, machine parts uh, factories. And it stopped in the 60s and 70s being financially sensible to have your factories in downtown Manhattan. So for a while, these buildings in the 70s, um, especially, were vacant. And the city was a really scary place to live for a lot of people. And crime was all the way up. And um, you had a lot of artists move in. They, they squatted, essentially, in these places that were sort of factories and sort of apartments. And they took up residency there. There was this this world that you could be a part of where you could have large spaces that were abandoned and weren't really uh, to code as residential buildings. And then you see a lot of language like this start to pop up across the country. This is some of the language that New York used. 
The untenanted portions of such buildings now constitute a potential housing stock within such cities, which is capable, when appropriately altered, of accommodating general residential use, thereby contributing to an alleviation of the housing shortage, most severely affecting moderate and middle-income families, and of accommodating joint living work quarters for artists by making readily available space, which is physically and economically suitable for use by persons regularly engaged in the arts. So to take legalese and make it a little bit more comprehensible. Basically, what they're saying is there are all these buildings, and these buildings aren't factories anymore, and they're not um, desirable places for sensible people to live. So what we'll do is we will let these buildings cheat some of the building codes a little bit. Like We're going to make them safe, but make these regulations not as strict, and we're going to make it easier to move into them, especially if you are an artist. And that worked decently well in the 70s. Fast forward 20 years, and it all became a big sham, because having giant spaces to live in Soho was great after 20 years, because having a giant open floor plan became uh, more aesthetically desirable, because the amenities that didn't exist uh, there previously, including reasonable schools, now the schools were much better because they were being attended by the children of artists and playwrights and writers and thinkers in that way. There are now grocery stores and there are just sort of other things that made this neighborhood more desirable. And people like my parents who were lower middle class kids looking to live in, looking to move to New York in 1979 could buy an entire floor of a former factory for I think it was $76,000 in 1979. They were eccentrics because you had to be an eccentric if you could afford to pay $79,000 for a house at that time in New York and you moved into this neighborhood because there were still homeless people and graffiti everywhere and artists all, all over. But slowly, you know, you had um, the artists living there following the artists. Gay people felt comfortable living in, in this neighborhood. Um, it, sort of a wealthier or more well-to-do Blacks and Hispanics followed gay people. And then after my parents, the floodgates essentially opened. And in the early 80s, you had these buildings which were being sold with a little bit of a wink and a nod, where you would have to either promise that you are an artist or would say that you are renting it to an artist friend who was living there, or you would just need to sign something saying, if anybody checks as far as the building knows, I'm an artist. Fast forward to this year when Bill de Blasio is leaving and no longer gives a shit because everybody hates him and he's just trying to do some stuff they said he would do. For reasons that people still don't fully understand, council member Margaret Chin decided to, towards the end of this process, sneak in a part of the bill saying, and by the way, if you live in one of thousand plus units in NoHo and Soho, you have to be an artist or we will fine you $15,000 for the first offense, meaning the first time they check, $25,000 for each subsequent offense and $1,000 a month from that point on if you are a non-artist living in one of these artists' own buildings. And and by offense, that means like they check once, 15K, 
then like you have to become an artist before they then exactly you have to become an artist and then in two or three months they'll check again and they pay 25 grand and if you haven't become an artist by then then they start charging you a thousand dollars a month to live in the house you own and this freaked a lot of people out because a lot of people like my parents who are in their 70s right now have lived their entire adult lives in these houses and they are by all measurements wealthy people but most of their wealth is actually in this apartment right now they're they're not sitting on a lot of cash they're sitting on this house that they bought for 80 grand that is now worth a couple million dollars which is a massive amount of money but if you make a law say only artists can live there, not only are you then charging my parents $1,000 a month for the rest of their lives, and that's $1,000 a month they don't have, but you're also saying that they can't sell their house because the only people who are allowed to buy their apartment is a an artist. So you create a situation where something like five to 50,000 New Yorkers are suddenly told that their nest egg, where they have lived their entire life, is now valueless. My attitude from the beginning was, come down, there is no way that the city government is going to fuck over 10,000 relatively well-to-do middle-aged to elderly white people. Like in the history of the United States, that has not been a group that has ever been fucked over. And I think my instinct is going to end up being correct, that nothing will happen and it will be uh, vetoed. Already, um, Eric Adams, who needs to have a relationship with the wealthy New York because he's going to run for a second term and he doesn't want this to dominate his mayoralty, has already suggested that he will veto it. What I am fascinated about and what I wanted to talk to you about is the city's plan to define who is and who is not an artist. Is there anything about this new law or this new enforcement of the law that directly makes housing affordable or available to artists? Like I see how oh, that is people who are not artists, but I don't see how it even theoretically benefits artists. Another way of asking that question is asking, why is council member Margaret Chin doing this? And the answer is nobody really knows. I mean, I could make it up best you could, which is that like, I guess if you kick all these people out of their homes, other people would live there and definitely a lot of wealth would be lost and these homes would be a lot less valuable. So maybe artists who didn't have as much money could move in there, but it's, it's all sort of very poorly thought out. So I called uh, the council councilwoman Chin's office and asked for an explanation and they couldn't give me one. They said that they would get back to me. I called up uh, a couple people pretending to still work for the Atlantic um, because I thought was maybe that, that would help. I ask if you were representing Slee Ricketts. If you, if you, if no, no I, this is, uh, <laughs> I thought about dropping Slee Ricketts, but I thought that would create too much chaos. You know, Slee Ricketts is, is on the line. You know, so I pretended to still work for the places that I, I used to work for. Anyway, no one has any idea. No one's calling me back and no one will. But the most interesting part of all of this is... There are four enumerated um, criteria that you need to meet in order to be an artist, according to the city. One, you must be regularly engaged. What that means is the individual is currently engaged in and demonstrates a serious, consistent commitment to his or her art form. 
Now, keep in mind, this is going to determine whether people are kicked out of their homes or not. So number one, you have to be currently engaged in a serious, consistent commitment to your art form. Like, so somebody wrote the first draft of this said, it's like, well, what does an artist do? And well, we got to make sure they're really artists. So this individual needs to be engaged in his art form as a part of the job. And some people are like, all right, that's good, but that's not enough. We need this person to be engaged in a serious, consistent, we don't want some of these part-time artists. But you know, like the simpler version of this would have been, this individual makes art. Right, right? totally. But like totally. this version, not only do you have to demonstrate a serious, consistent commitment, you don't. You also don't have to make art. But it gets weirder from there. Now, someone's like, all right, but who is going to be able to sneak through this, this <laughs> the, the holes we've created? And then they're like, number two, and then it just says in italics, fine art. So the individual is engaged in an art form or an art occupation that can be considered and is pursued by the individual as, quote, fine art, unquote. And now we're going to define fine art. Evidenced by a substantial element of independent aesthetic judgment and self-directed work. But that's not enough. The production of work solely on a commercial, industrial or work for higher basis without evidence of the foregoing elements, meaning the substantial element of independent aesthetic or self-directed work is not sufficient to demonstrate fine art. So this means not only do you need to be committed to your art, but that your art needs to demonstrate independent aesthetic judgment. So would that mean that like, like, the first person who did cubism would be allowed to live in Soho, but the second person who did cubism? Well, like which city official is in charge of determining the degree of substantial independent judgment? And, and it can't be commercial or industrial or work for hire. Higher. So if you are a, 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 I guess, a portrait painter who only paints portraits, who only, who only paints paintings on commission that's work for hire that's not fine enough for right. the city zoning resolution We're number like, three like, I mean, professional basis like, we keep in mind that you can't be somebody who just does work for hire number right. three professional basis the individuals committed to the art form or an art occupation as his or her primary vocation and others in the field recognize the individual as a professional with regard to this art form so you have to do this in a way where it can't be commercial, you can't be a work for hire artist, but it has to be your primary vocation. Number four, sorry, go ahead. You need to intend to you you need to intend to use the joint living work quarters, meaning that the individual demonstrates the intent to use the joint living work quarters for the purpose of carrying out his or her art form, meaning that I have a friend who. Um, is a, a digital photographer who is a, a relatively successful one. I don't want to use her name, but she said like, okay, I live in one of these buildings. I am a photographer. I have my own way of framing the, the scene. You know, I, I'm, I'm, a, a reg, I'm respected by my peers. She put in her, she tried to obtain her artist certification. She submitted it and was told that yes, she demonstrated a serious, consistent commitment to her art. Yes, 
her photography was fine art and, and demonstrated independent aesthetic judgment. Yes, it was her professional primary vocation, but no, she did not need the work quarters to be the size of this loft to do her work is really wasn't it true that all she needed was a digital camera and a computer and a printer and couldn't she fit that in a closet space what right so this is obviously you do your work there it's like you must use all of the space you have to use you have to do huge huge art and this is codified into law like it's not just something i'm making up this is thousands and thousands of new yorkers are they passed the law. It's a law. I mean, it looks like Eric Adams will veto the law, but right now this is the law. And the, the best part of all of this is that like, yes, you and I have in the past gone back and forth about what does it mean to be an artist and like how like is just living is sort of the, the, the foppish artistic life just is that, you know, life as art is is um, performance art, art is, uh, you know, a, a serial mystery or thriller novelist genre versus high art. My favorite part of all of that is we who have dedicated ourselves to thinking through the repercussions of art have no idea how to reach regions of that. But some bureaucrat is going to be looking through these portfolios. Some like middle-aged lady in the back room of City Hall, she's like, next, you know, and like somebody brings in and she's like, well, that is art, I guess. Like that's that sculpt, that sculpture's huge. But um, does it demonstrate independent aesthetic judgment? You know, and she's like, well, nope, it, it, it demonstrates independent aesthetic judgment. Your huge art. So we got number four and number two. Your huge art demonstrates aesthetic judgment. But are you recognized in the field as a professional with regard to that art? Like, do you are you provide are, that evidence? Like, do you have to provide references for like? Other yes, in the field? you need references. You need a portfolio. You need. And it's just some guy behind a desk, some 28 or 62 year old being like, um, yeah, okay, so no, I see it. This is huge. This is a giant painting. Um, and it's you you clearly have made it and oh, you have letters of references. Oh, interesting. You know, um, the 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 head of the the art history department at uh, at NYU says that you are respected. But wait a minute. Have you demonstrated consistent commitment to this art? Because if you just made this art two years ago and since then have been taking care of your grandkids, or if you decided you needed to go be a paralegal to pay rent for a while, is that consistent commitment? It is so spectacular and it gets even weirder. So there are these like Q and A's, you know, like, uh, sorry, not Q and A's, the F FAQs, right? Frequently asked questions for this. Do I have to make my living as an artist? The department, capital D, recognizes the majority of artists do not earn their living through sales of their artwork. Professional refers to the nature of the artist's commitment to his or her vocation. So again, who, how, what, who is, how is this, who is eligible? Any person who is regularly engaged in fine arts, such as paint, now they just name random fine arts. So anyone who is relative, who is regularly engaged in fine arts, such as painting and sculpture, or in the performing or creative arts, including choreography and filmmaking, I guess like, but not including uh, theater or in the composition of music, evidenced by a substantial element of independent aesthetic judgment and self-directed work. I. So they're going to listen to a symphony 
and then say, no, this reminds me too much of Brahms's second, you can't live on Broadway and Astor Place. Well, and if I'm reading the thing, will the departments return my support material? The department returns <laughs> provided the applica application includes a self-addressed returned mailer with correct. So your art must be huge, but also mailable. <laughs> I mean, maybe you have to like, like take you a picture of it with like a, with like a man standing next to it. And you're like, oh, that's it. You're like, I, like a doctor's know that like this is a normal sized man and next to the normal sized man is like a humongous sculpture. It's all so crazy. So yes, people are rightfully or wrongfully complaining that their house is being taken from them. And like legitimately banks aren't giving loans right now while this is, so people who have, who are in contract to sell their homes, that's all stopped. And they're waiting. People want to move into the houses. People want to, you know, they, they I, I know of a older couple who their plan, because they had their first grandkid, they were going to sell this house. They were going to give some money to their kid to take, help take care of the baby. And then they were going to move to a rental near where the baby uh, lives. They can't do any of that because the bank now won't guarantee the loan because the banks are like, well, what happens if this law that was just said it was going to be enforced is going to continue to be enforced? Again, that's all logistics and like for lawyers and land use people. The fact that there is some lady or guy or gender nonconform person in a room trying to tick off all these boxes and saying, no, this does not show that you have demonstrated a serious, consistent commitment to your art, or no, it is not your primary vocation. Because again, like number three, it has to be your primary vocation. But in the in the um, frequently asked questions, we understand the majority of artists do not earn their living through sales of their artwork. Pretty sure pr primary vocation means make a living through your art. So who are going to be the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are going to replace the people who live there now? How did this get through public hearings? And why hasn't anyone written an article about this saying like, this is totally insane on every single level? It's, it's like it's written in order to rule out people who just want to scribble something on a napkin and call it art, but then it's being enforced by the letter. Like it's Well, that's the problem, right? Because you, you get to the point, and this I think you also discussed a little bit in your conversation with Kathleen, where it's just individual at the very end of the line trying to do their job. So if you write a law and you say, don't enforce this, it doesn't matter, who cares? That's fine. But if there's some guy in the back office somewhere looking through portfolios, right, he's going to either ignore them all and rubber stamp everything, or he's going to say like, I don't know, I'm, this is my job. I guess I should try to figure out whether this artist is someone who evidenced by a substantial element of independent aesthetic judgment and self-directed work and whose art is huge. I mean, apart from like the very small slice of people who make huge art successfully, with, with like successfully meaning like with, and make it for a lot of money, and that's mostly what they do. Apart from that, like incredibly small number of people, and just to say that incredibly small number of people, they don't want to live where they're making art. They are millionaires, right? right? Like they, they, they have, are. They have Richard Serra does not need to like yeah. put a cot behind his giant sculptures, like right. he. He can have a whole house where he lives. 
at a different place where he works. So this this is literally applies to zero human beings. If this were actually a thing that that did help artists, the way it would work is that the first step would be crash the market, all the property value in the neighborhood plunges and we right. wind back gentrification to the second step. Right. Right. The first right. Step. The, like we wind it back to where like the neighborhood is a neighborhood no one wants to live in that has no money and resources. And then the rent is low enough that artists can live there. Right. Artists who are not influenced by other artists aesthetic judgment. Right. Because because then like that, like once you once you qualified in every other way and you were like it was a neighborhood where like only like waiters and drug dealers who painted lived right. then, then they would be sickled down by the by the 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 harvester who was who was checking on the originality of their work and, right, right. Like, they all have to be waiters waiters uh, who are who are geniuses right, right. i mean yeah. it's just it read to me this reads to me that like somebody as a, like read one of those like children's biographies of Van Gogh, you know, and like thinks about like, what is a real artist? Well, a real artist is is really engaged and and isn't doing what other artists are doing. And you can't just hire that artist. And the artist is gonna work out all over the place where he lives and 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 like he's not interested in commerce. He and and he's got all these new ideas. You know, and this was like, yep, that's it. Write it up. It's like, like it, every movie or TV show about an artist living in New York, where it's like this enormous apartment that's really, right. it's like clearly would be millions of dollars. And they, the sort of the artist sort of seems to make art all day and like maybe works a little bit. But like the thought is always like, well, anybody who's ever lived in New York or even visited New York sees that this is ridiculous. But like this was written by someone who lives in New York, presumably. These are like, lawmakers. Who's like, these are only ever seen artists in a TV show. So, so to give them the benefit of the doubt, like obviously the language here is insane and it, there's no way that this thing where you have to have an independent aesthetic and self, like you also see self-directed work is such a weird line, like as opposed to what, so what is it like, if you were going to have a community where artists lived, a neighborhood inside a major city whether it's Baltimore or New York, or if if you're going to have a neighborhood, how would that work? You could say like, it would have to be somehow rent controlled, right? Where yeah, yeah. you wouldn't be able to, there were, and it would have to be rent controlled according to your demonstrating that some percentage of your time is dedicated to an artistic pursuit. So, so like you, you could, I could see a world where, New York has these rent control laws to to keep um, houses inexpensive, and they're great if you get one of these houses, and they're not great if you feel like they're you know in, inorganically suppressing um, prices elsewhere to make you know other other houses more expensive. But the idea is that this way you keep regular people being able to live in in New York. So if you were to maybe combine rent control laws with um, rules regulations, but, but by saying like rent control properties now you need to be say like a police officer or a fire you know a fighter like things that would help you know maybe a public school teacher a police officer a firefighter or an artist right i, I could see there being some sort of benefit to a city if you would zone certain areas where you would artificially keep 
prices down in order to keep those neighborhoods inhabited by people you wanted to live yeah, in yeah, your yeah. neighborhood. Definitely. And then I, I think it, you wouldn't need to have it be like independent aesthetic judgment, a serious, consistent commitment. Right, right, right. No, you no, would no, just no. need to like log hours and then you show a finished work. And if, I don't know, I mean, it would be hard to, how long does a poem take to write? So like, I don't, I don't know how that work, but, but at least that would be a start. Yeah. I mean, it would be like the, it'd be like a publisher parish model. So then, but then the, the question is, is one of, it's not so much about the nature of the law. It's about the consistency and the longevity, right? Like if you, whatever law determines that only artists can live here, however loosely defined, the problem is that it needs to keep being the law, right? Right. Like, or it not being the law for a while in the nineties. And then, and then the problem is that it's suddenly snapped back. Right. And I, I think that part of what you're implying is that there's an inevitability there that you can't really keep this law in without heavily subsidizing it, which no guy is going to want to do. Because as housing prices increase, keeping underemployed artists in these units means that that money is going to need to be made up somehow. And if it's government housing, that they can, the government can make more money by renting it to others. If it's private housing, private people will, and the government would need to subsidize it. So like, I think part of the reason why in downtown Manhattan, it just stopped being enforced is because th there was no reasonable way to continue enforcing it other than heavily subsidizing private landowners to keep artists in their homes. But it does like, I, clearly this does nothing to help artists and it only, it's like a, a Dantean punishment, like an, a, it's like cruel, ironic, weird punishment for, you know, middle-aged and elderly, like bourgeois homeowners in, in NoHo and SoHo. It doesn't, it doesn't help artists, doesn't help anybody. It's just sort of funnily weird and sadistic, and especially for Bill de Blasio, which like, I, my, 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 my sense of Bill de Blasio seems to be that everybody in New York universally hates him or hated him, but nobody could say exactly why. Yeah, he did, Bill de Blasio just did like a bunch of super annoying things. Like he neither got the main groups behind him that politicians typically do, like the police union or the teachers union or like uh, black people or white people. Like there, there's no there's no core constituency anymore to Bill de Blasio. And he insisted on like taking a two hour trip with his black van to go and work out in the gym that he used to work out in before he was mayor. And like, it meant that no one else could work out there. And there was all this traffic and he's like, come on, man, can't you just work out at the government, at the, the mayor's place where everyone worked? And he's like, no, I just doesn't really have a gym there. He doesn't No, he, he just likes to go to his other gym. Like he was always three hours. <laughs> it, it was, like there's traffic. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was in park slope, I think. And he was uptown. It, it didn't make any sense. None of it made any sense. And that's a lot of the, the, the Bill de Blasio stuff where like, he seems like a good guy and he's like weirdly eight feet tall, but also he thinks that only artists should be able to live between uh, spring street and eighth street. It's, but there's no plan for what that actually means. Like, he, like really, this right. is not a law about helping artists live somewhere. It's a law about no. helping non-artists not live somewhere. Like, yes. Really, it, yeah, that's all it seems to be doing. It makes me wonder, like, there's is there some version, whether it's housing or something, like, there's some version of some sort of subsidy for artists that it feels like, like, like 
unsuccessful artists are providing an enormous subsidy to our culture all the time. And so it feels like there's some... So is that true? Because that's true. what you and I that want to true. think. So, so what do unsuccessful artists, or what do successful artists at that matter, provide for our for our culture like why do we in order to get no that's that's the thing that's it's like the chess thing like in order to get success even even like merit is such a weird sideways question but like let's just assume for a minute that there is even something like a meritocracy like let's just assume that we want to there to be a handful of ultra talented artists that we all have access to as a culture like let's just assume that that's something we want Sure. I mean, even if that just means that, like, we like watching Succession on HBO and we want there to be a sure. training grounds where the Succession writers learn how to write. Right. Well, and but the training grounds where the Succession writers learn how to write are also the training grounds where the lots and lots of non-successful writers also learn. Like, you don't, you can't pick it at birth. Like, you you need to have lots of people trying to do this. In of order course. To get a handful of do those like, just, that's just get your starters, to. right? Sorry. I, I agree. Why do those people, people? Why do we get to live special places. Well, I'm not saying we get to live special places. I'm not saying like like the NoHo housing project is the answer. I'm saying I think we derive a cultural benefit from the existence of large numbers of people trying really hard to make art and mostly failing that we don't acknowledge. In the same way that like like one of the things that used to drive me fucking crazy is when uh, my dad would say. Teachers don't get paid as much as baseball players, you know, or, or whatever, because they don't make uh, money for other people as much as baseball players, which is which is like false. Like, it's totally false. So the, the, question, the problem is they don't make as much money for people now. They make money for, they make tons of money for people down the road. Like, if, if every teacher got like a 0.0001%, you know, stock in the student right. that they bought, they'd all be millionaires by the time they were retiring. But Right. Uh, the reason why baseball players make so much money, so much more money than teachers is you only need 180 baseball players. <laughs> You need, you you need a hundred million teachers. Like it's it's a, the idea of bidding for talent at that level is why you need to make so much money. Which is why the falsehood of black poor people being taken out of poverty by football and basketball is so pernicious because they're really just competing against one another for an infinitesimally small number oh, yeah. of slots right right i mean um, and that's like that's a similar subsidy right like kids who are who are in you know dire financial conditions and believe that becoming a professional athlete is the way out that you get this enormous flood of kids in this position devoting the that 10,000 hours or whatever to becoming athletes and then a tiny tiny portion of them succeed so yeah i, I mean i think we have a we have like a weird aspiration subsidy in our in our country that is provided I didn't from the think ground up. People, people, upper middle class white people seem to like the idea of living around bad aspiring artists in a way they don't like the idea of living around bad aspiring basketball players. Correct. Now I know that's an age thing, but there's like a a cachet, like I hear all the time. Oh, I wish Manhattan used to be more like it used to be. But like Manhattan it was now more like it used to be. But it, the reason why artists could live in Manhattan then is because Manhattan was terrible. Right. Like, so people didn't want to pay high rent. So people who weren't making a lot of money because they were devoting themselves to artistic pursuits could live in houses that nobody else wanted. People don't actually want to live in those situations. They want to live in the fancy areas where they live now where when they go out to a cafe or restaurant, they hear people 
arguing about literature film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think I think that I think that's true. I I do also think that there's some there are various people who've made arguments like this. Some of whom are normal, boring New York Times columnists, and some of whom are weird right wing eugenicists. But like there there are, I think like there's some there's some like truth to the suggestion that like that we are that like people of different wealth and income live in very different areas is not so great. Like it would be better if that were a little more mixed up for for everybody. And I think part of that has to do with the the the, the aspiration thing. Like it's the in some in some ways like the subsidy already exists for people who come from families that can support them in the same way that like there is a subsidy for uh you know stay-at-home parents whose spouses can support them like but i think there's a that's another sort of like invisible industry that is that we rely on both like culturally and economically and whatever but we don't acknowledge and Maybe I'm just a communist. Maybe that's what I'm really getting at. I think we should subsidize the work of mothers who parent with a substantial element of independent aesthetic judgment and self-directed work, <laughs> I, I think, and have really big kids. If, well, they if, need... if they are recognized by others in the field as, as <laughs> truly professional. They need to be committed to their kids as a primary vocation. Right. Exactly. And the but other people at the, the park need to be the, letters. The professional refers account. not to the nature of the, refers to the nature of the commitment of the mother, not to the survival of the children. That's the, it's the difference between fine parents parenting and <laughs> commercial parenting, parenting. Like, yeah. Yeah. factory farm parenting. industrial parenting, parenting.